Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about, in your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. So your weekly grocery run can feel even more productive, and that morning coffee can taste like a little victory. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities to get lower rates on loans, like for a new ride or finally having a home to call your own. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at chime.com build. That's chime.com build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com disclosures for details. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, we didn't have a Black Monday or even a Black Tuesday for that matter. But U.S. stocks are lower today than they were Friday at the close, although there are three more Fridays left during the month of October. So we're not out of the woods, although technically the big drop doesn't have to happen in one day on a Monday or it doesn't even have to happen on any given day. It can simply be a steady decline throughout the month of October, which would go down in history books as another weak October for stocks. But again, as I pointed out last week, a lot of things are happening that are converging in the month of October that should be very bad for stocks if investors are smart enough to read the writing on the wall. I mean, interest rates are moving up and there are large consequences to an over leveraged economy that has been completely dependent on ridiculously low levels of interest rates, the fact that interest rates are no longer ridiculously low, they're just low, when you are used to ridiculous and now you just have normal low, right? If you are used to a tremendous amount of drugs to stay high, and even if you're still taking drugs, but you're not taking as much as you were, you can still have a withdrawal because your body needs a lot of drugs. Well, we've got a lot of debt. We need really, really low interest rates to pretend that we can afford it. Interest rates are still low based on maybe a historically normal amount of debt and a normal amount of leverage, but because we have so much more debt, the levels of debt and leverage are abnormal, thanks in large part to how low interest rates have been and for how long they stayed there, that is what encouraged us to take on all this extra debt. Now we're paying the price as interest rates are starting to rise. I mean, the housing market in particular, you know, I didn't even notice this or recognize this when I did the podcast on Friday, but the housing stocks had completed their longest losing streak in history. I forget how many consecutive days they were down, but whatever it was, it was a record. That means that the housing stocks broke whatever record they probably set back in 2008. So this was worse. And so finally, Monday, we had an up day to break the streak. And now we're starting all over again because we had a big down day across the board 
in the housing stocks today. You know, when I was looking at mortgage rates, which are now finally above 5%, I think the average 30-year fixed is maybe 5.1. And if you want to do a refi now, is I think five and a quarter. So really the refis are going to come crashing down because who's going to refinance into a five and a quarter percent rate? Everybody's got a rate that's much lower than that now. So the, the refinancing market is going to completely dry up. And you know a lot of Americans were using that as a lifeline. Housing prices were going up. Maybe there were still some people that could refinance into a lower rate particularly if they can withdraw some equity. If the appreciation enabled you to refinance your mortgage into a larger mortgage, but because the rates were so low, you maybe even had a payment decline, even as you can pull out cash, this was another lifeline to keep people afloat. Well, that lifeline is gone. But also another lifeline that homeowners had, either in refinancing or in purchases, was using an arm, an adjustable rate mortgage. Now, the proliferation of adjustable rate mortgages in the last few years is not as great as it was during the housing bubble that popped in 2008, but there are still maybe 20, 25% of home buyers over the last five years that opted for arms. Maybe they took a five-year arm where you have the same rate for five years rather than a fixed-rate mortgage. Now, why do they do that? Well, let's say the fixed-rate mortgage was 4%, but you can get a five-year arm at 3%. And that's a big savings, a full percentage point. You know, rates were 25% lower, right, at 3% than 4%. So a lot of people that were stretching to get into homes that they really couldn't afford, one way they were able to stretch far enough is by using an arm. But what's going to happen to somebody who took out a five-year arm four years ago? If you look at where those arms are now, the five-year arms, they're at 5% too. They're like at 4.95 or something like that. So they're basically 5%. There's less than a quarter of a percentage point difference now between a 30-year fixed rate mortgage and a five-year arm. So number one, that means that people who already have arms that they took out you know, four years ago, as they mature, maybe they were paying 3%. Now they're going to start to pay 5%, even if they roll over into another five-year arm. That is a huge increase percentage-wise in the cost. Now, if they couldn't afford a 4% fixed-rate mortgage a year or two ago, and that's why they took the arm, well, if they couldn't afford four back then, how are they going to afford five now? Now, the other problem for the housing market is the new buyer. People were able to get into homes they couldn't afford when they could take out an arm instead of a 30-year fixed. But today, since the five-year arm and the 30-year fixed are basically the same rate, if you can't afford the 30-year fixed, you can't get into that home by using an arm. Right, because it's just as expensive. So you can't stretch any further. You're basically stuck. So the only thing they can give is the housing price. The housing price has to come down rather substantially in order to return you know, affordability so that the buyers can afford to buy. And that is ultimately what sets the price. It's the demand. Obviously, too, the supply is there, but the supply is going to keep growing but when it comes to houses, you can't sell your house unless somebody is willing to buy it. Right? And so who is going to buy it? Well, I mean, if you can't afford it, the price has to keep falling until the buyers can afford to buy that house. And in fact, it doesn't even matter what it costs you to build it. You know, if, if nobody can afford to pay you that, then you can't get that price. The market is going to have to sink to where people can actually afford the home. And those prices are a lot lower. Of course, they would be much lower if you didn't have Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and all this government guarantees that people had to actually come up with a 20% deposit and they actually had to convince a bank that they you know, had the, 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 the credit worthiness, they had the income uh, to repay the loan. So the moral hazard of the government is, is causing a lot of people to buy homes that shouldn't be buying them. But they still have to make the payments. You know, even if they if they can get away with no down payment, they still have to make the monthly payments. And they're not going to be able to do it. That's why these home building stocks are getting beaten up to the extent that they are. 
but the markets again are oblivious to what's happening. This is exactly what happened before the 2008 financial crisis as a lot of these adjustable rate mortgages were resetting at higher levels, affordability went away, and the supply kept increasing as people weren't able to buy homes. Now, for a while, the sellers, you know, they're not worried. They just, they just leave their houses on the market. They don't want to acknowledge that the house is worth a lot less than they think. So you have this lag, right? Before uh, the sellers reluctantly lower their prices to where the market is. And so people are complacent and they're oblivious. And that's where we are right now in the housing market. People don't want to admit that their house is not worth what they thought it was worth, so they don't want to mark down their sale prices. But the minute that starts happening, it doesn't just affect the sale. It affects the value of all the homes that are not for sale. It affects the value of all the homes that people regard as their biggest asset, right? As I said last week, it is the reverse wealth effect. It is now the impoverished effect because your house is going down in value. And in many cases, that's your only asset. And now it's just a liability because all you have is a mortgage. You no longer have any equity because, A, you didn't put much down when you bought it in the beginning and you've lost it all to depreciation. Same thing again, the auto market. Look at General Motors down today, a new 52-week low in GM stock. You know, it had a reprieve, uh, what, a week or two ago because of that joint venture with a Japanese car company uh, that caused the stock to spike maybe almost 10% intraday. Uh, But that whole rally has been surrendered. Stock was down 4.7% today. We're below 33, 32.65 on General Motors The chart looks horrific, uh, but of course, Ford is even worse. Ford was down 3.3%, below nine bucks, 8.95. Remember when I said Ford uh, was going to be a single-digit midget, and I went over on my podcast uh, how when I I said that about General Motors years and years ago, when General Motors was like a $20 or $30 stock, and I said it would soon be a single-digit midget, and in fact, it went to zero because it went bankrupt before the government took it over, and then there was a new IPO or a new listing of the company after it went bankrupt and was bailed out by the federal government. But I remember when I I gave a a New York Post reporter uh, that quote, I got in trouble from the Little People's Association of America who sent me a letter, you know, calling me out for referring to uh, a car or referring to a stock as a midget as opposed, you know, because that was a bad word. And, you know, of course, single digit doesn't rhyme with little person and person doesn't even make any sense when you're referring to a stock. But, you know, at the risk of offending another little person, you know, Ford is, you know, a single digit midget and it is below $9 at $8.95. You know, by the way, I mentioned that I used to own an MG when I was in high school and MG used to make a car called an MG midget. And so I guess you couldn't even have that car today. I had an MGB, and I actually posted a photograph of myself as a sophomore in college in 1982 uh, when uh, I wanted to put that up there because that was the same year that Brett Kavanaugh was accused of the sexual assault. And I put it up there because I was mentioning the fact that, you know, I too was a college drinker. And so I put up a photograph of me in college standing next to my MGB, which I ended up selling at the end of that year to my mechanic. And I got a Japanese car. I ended up getting a a Mazda RX-7, which I had until I eventually traded that in after college. And I got a 325. That's my, that's my history. I went, so I went from British to Japanese to German. Those were my first three cars. But if you want to see that photograph, it's somewhere up on my my Facebook page. But let me get back to the point I was trying to make is that Ford and General Motors are going down Ford at a nine-year low. But Ford never went bankrupt. But it got down to like about a dollar a share when GM and Chrysler went bankrupt. And then it survived. It didn't get any bailout money. And then the stock recovered. And I think it got as high as maybe 16-ish or so. And so now it's been almost cut in half from that high down down in the eights. But, you know, the chart looks horrific. And if you look at the fact that Americans have a record amount of car debt already uh, on, on the books and that a lot of Americans have bought new cars and they really couldn't have afforded them, but they bought them anyway. And now they have a lot of payments left because they stretched the financing. Ford and GM, their sales are going to implode. 
these stocks are looking horrible. And these tariffs that Trump is now bragging about how great they are, these tariffs are going to make it worse uh, for the auto companies. And pretty soon, the layoffs are going to begin. And of course, a lot of these auto workers voted for Trump and they got promised, oh, the jobs are coming back, uh, your income's going to go up, and now they're going to get pink slips, maybe not in time for the midterm elections this November, but certainly in time for the general elections in 2020, you're going to have a lot of people who have been laid off who were promised uh, you know, better jobs and higher paying jobs, and instead they're going to uh, be getting unemployment checks. But the most important reason, I think, why this is so reminiscent of what was going on, I think, uh, in 2008 before the crisis is the degree to which investors are so dismissive of these warning signs that you can see this huge slowdown in housing and autos. And even though the retailers are going down, the financials were beaten up. Look at Morgan Stanley hit a new 52-week low today making new lows. Again, that's what was going on in 2008 before the crisis. The home builders were going down. The financials were going down. Nobody cared. You know, people were oblivious because they didn't know there was a problem. So they didn't even know what to look out for. You see, when I started seeing all this stuff happening in 2008, 2007, yeah, I understood what it meant because I had been waiting for it for years. I had been looking for these things. I had been forecasting that this stuff was going to happen. The thing was, it took longer than I thought. Same thing is happening again. These markets going down is what I've been expecting because I know how interest rate sensitive this all is. And I know how more leveraged the economy is today than it was in 2008, how the economy is even more dependent on these low interest rates, but all the, the Pollyannas, all the permabulls who are caught up in the bubble, you know, they didn't understand, they didn't see the warning signs in 08, and they don't see the warning signs now. I mean, they're basically saying that the problems in housing and the problems in autos are contained. Contained, right? Yeah, just like the subprime problems were contained. Nothing is contained. Right? There is no way that we're going to have a recession in autos and a recession in housing and that the economy is going to keep on booming when you have these two segments busting. And in fact, it's going to be the whole retail sector that's going to go. And the financials, again, are going to be in a lot of trouble because of the defaults. Remember, I was saying on this podcast that a lot of people were of the opinion that rising interest rates were going to be good for financials. The reason was, well, the financials are going to make more money. The spreads are going to widen. They're going to make more loans, and they're going to have a bigger profit between their cost to borrow and what they can get to loan. That was wrong. I pointed it out at the time that when interest rates go up, that's what's going to expose all the problem loans that the, that the banks have been making, and that when interest rates go up, a lot of the loans that they already made are going to end up in default. But the problem is when interest rates go up, the collateral behind those loans loses value. So the banks end up with big losses as interest rates go up. Meanwhile, banks are in the business of lending money, right? Or, you know, you can lend more money when interest rates are low than when interest rates are high. I mean, that's like a supply and demand. If your product that you're selling are loans, you can sell more loans when the loans are cheap, right? The more expensive the loans are, the fewer people can afford to take out the loans. In fact, one of the better things about higher interest rates is, is the speculators that can't borrow. So if you actually are borrowing for real investment purposes and you have a project, let's say, that can make a you know, 10 or 15% return, you can afford to borrow at 7 or 8%. But if you're just gambling, if you're just levering up, you know, that's a lot of, of interest to pay on, on a gamble, you know, levering up an investment position. So as you have higher interest rates, more of society's capital is directed towards actual productive investment, which is something that you want. But of course, less of it is going to go to financial speculation. But as far as the banks are concerned, they just want volume. And obviously, you're going to do more loans when interest rates are low, especially to consumers, right? The consumers are going to be very sensitive as interest rates really start to go up. I mean, their ability to make the payments is really impacted. They get no return. The only return they get is the enjoyment of buying something that they can't afford. But then they have to pay for it and they have to live with the pain of doing that. So as interest rates go up, the bank's lending business goes down because fewer people can afford to, to borrow the money 
at those higher rates, especially when they're already loaded up with debt. So the financials are not benefiting like everybody thought from rising rates. They are suffering and they're going to suffer a lot more because rates are going to go a lot higher. Remember, we're at three and a quarter on the 10 year. We're at 3.4 on the 30 year. These are low rates, but the problem is they're low rates based on the historic normal amount of debt that we've had, but we don't have a normal amount of debt. We have an abnormal amount of debt. We have you know, tremendous debt. And since we have so much more debt than we've had in the past, we're a lot less credit worthy now than we were in the past. We should be paying more than we have paid historically to borrow money today. And the risk to the lender of inflation is so much greater given how much debt we have and the increased likelihood that we will inflate that debt away, that the Fed will be called on to monetize that debt, that we're going to relaunch quantitative easing. And so the inflation premiums need to go up. Lenders to Americans need to demand and be paid a higher rate of interest to compensate them for that increased risk of loss due to uh, inflation. And of course, there is actually even an increased risk of loss of default, because the only way we can avoid massive inflation is to legitimately default. But of course, either way, the bondholders are going to get screwed. Either they're not going to get paid back, or they're going to be paid back in money that doesn't buy very much. But either way, they should demand a much higher interest rate to, to take that risk. And so rates have so much further to go. I mean, that's the, the maximum complacency out there. It's not just that people are ignoring the fact that rates have already gone up and how that's going to affect the economy, but the potential, how much more they can go up and how much more they should go up now that we're breaking through these downtrends. I mean, I think that we've actually broken the bull market that bonds have been in since the early 1980s, maybe 1981. We've been in this bull market for over 25 years, and the stock market has been riding that wave. Asset prices have been riding that wave. Real estate and stocks have benefited from 25 years of falling interest rates. Now you're going to reverse that. I mean, I don't know if it's going to be 25 years of rising interest rates, but interest rates are going to rise for many, many years, and they're going a lot higher. That is a massive headwind, right? We were now we go from riding this wave to just getting crushed by by a tsunami coming the other way, right in our faces. And so now, you know, this is a bear market in in financial assets. But what's going to benefit from rising rates is gold, right? Commodities and the emerging markets are going to benefit from this. And I touched on this again on the Friday podcast, but I really just want to mention it again. Because, you know, it was always very frustrating, right? To me, personally, when the financial crisis hit and people were saying, oh, yeah, Peter Schiff, you were right, but your clients lost money, which was true. And, it, you know, that, that, that always bothered me. And, of course, you know, that, you know, it tainted my, my victory of being right. I mean, yes, I made money shorting subprime, but that was in 07. The, most of my clients we're just in foreign stocks and gold stocks in 08 and and the markets went down with everybody else and of course you know back then and I remember the summer of 2008 right before that crisis I mean people I mean accounts were coming in left and right I mean people were dying to give me money but at that time the dollar was already at a record low the dollar index was at 70 and people were getting out of the dollar at the bottom gold was at a thousand, which at that time was a record high. It had never been that high. Silver was about maybe at 20 or so. I think it peaked out around there. That wasn't a record, but you know, it had started to rally at about three bucks, you know, in 2000 or so, three, four dollars, and it was up at 20. It, it wasn't back at the record yet, which was $50 in, in 1980. We eventually hit that number again in 2011 after the financial crisis, but before the crisis, Clients who were buying gold and silver from me, they were paying a record high price for gold and, you know, a very, very high price for silver relative to where silver had been. But I was getting lots of people sending me money. But of course, in hindsight, they, they made a mistake, right? They were buying gold at the top at the time. They were selling the dollar at the bottom. And in fact, even though gold made new highs and gold went to 1900 in 2011, silver went to 50, the dollar index never made a new low. 
It never took out the low that it established in August of 2008 before the financial crisis. So again, people were at least worried about the rising trade deficits. Uh, and the trade deficit, by the way, hit an all-time record high in the summer of 08. And that was one of the reasons that the dollar was so low. People were smart enough to be worried about big trade deficits. They're not that smart anymore. They're too dumb to worry about it. They were smart enough to buy gold. They were worried that this was going to be a problem. But they just didn't understand the magnitude of the problem or the way uh, the problem might impact the world in the financial crisis. So when the financial crisis hit, everybody who was long gold took profits. Everybody who was short the dollar, they, they bought the dollar back. And then my clients ended up, you know, losing money. But now, you know, nobody is sending me money. This time, though, not only am I going to be right on there being a crisis that is even bigger than the one in 2008, but I think I'm going to be right in that the people following my advice are going to make a tremendous amount of money right away because nobody buying gold now is buying the top. Gold is 40% off the top. It was at 1900 in 2011. Nobody buying silver. Silver's 75% down from where it was in 2011. The dollar index, we just had a huge bull market in the dollar. People are selling the dollar high right now. They're not selling it low like they did in 2008. See, my clients who were with me before the financial crisis, they made a bunch of money right up until the day the crisis happened, right? If you sent me the money in 2001, 2002, you made a ton of money. That's why I used to have so much fun when I was going on these shows and I was the bear and they were people were the bull and they would make fun of me for being bearish because the stock market kept going up. I kept saying, well, you guys are laughing at me. I'm making twice as much money as you. The foreign stocks are going up so much more than the U.S. stocks. It's not even close. Look at what's happening with gold stocks. Look at oil stocks. So be, I was making more money as a bear than they were making as a bull, even though the U.S. market was going up. Right? This time, anybody who's been following my advice the last five or six years, it's the opposite. You're making more money in the U.S. stock market than you are in foreign stocks or gold. But again, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be the opposite. This time, I'm not making my money before the crisis. I'm going to make my money after the crisis. Last time, I made my money before the crisis and lost a bunch of it back when the crisis hit. This is going to be more similar to the experience I had in the 1990s where I made all my money after the stock market bubble burst. But for the few years that I was predicting the bubble bursting in the NASDAQ in the late 90s, I wasn't making money. And everybody in the U.S. stock market was. Well, now I've been making all these warnings. The difference is, of course, back in 2004, 5, and 6, I was making my warnings on television. I was making them on CNN every week and CNBC and Fox and Bloomberg. Right now I'm just making them on my podcast. So the only people that are hearing it now are the people who listen to the podcast. So I'm not really going to be in a position to say I told you so the next time to some of these guys when not only am I right on my prediction, but everybody who's following my advice makes a ton of money as a result of having do done it. And I know a lot of people still say, well, you know, in 2008, all the stocks went down. Yes, they did, because the foreign stocks were so high. They had gone up so much. That's why they came down. Now they're dirt cheap. The U.S. stock market's been the only market that has been going up. And it's possible for foreign stocks to go up as U.S. stocks go down. I mean, look what just happened. I mentioned on my podcast uh, on Friday, the elections happening in Brazil. Bolsonaro is the uh, Brazilian Donald Trump, or that's what they're calling him. And I mentioned some of the uh, comments that he made that I agree with when it comes to the wage gap between men and women. But, you know, the, the newspapers here are trying to paint this guy as, you know, being ultra right wing, just a total extremist. He wants all kinds of crazy stuff. The reality is, He's the, the, the capitalist candidate, the free market candidate, the guy that wants to privatize and, and cut taxes. Uh, this is probably going to be the best thing to happen to Brazil if this guy wins the election. So they had the original election over the weekend on Sunday. And this guy got, I think, 46, 47 percent of the vote. I mean, huge. I mean, it would have been better if we got over 50 percent because then he would have won outright and he would already you know, be the next president. But now he has to have a runoff with the guy that came in second place, this guy, uh, Fernando Haddad, who is the left wing Workers Party candidate. 
Uh, and and he got the second most votes, but he was like maybe, I don't know, 26%, 25, 26. So it's overwhelming odds. It's another three weeks from now. They're going to have the, you know, the final election. And clearly it, it would be a complete shock if uh, Haddad, you know, won. So it looks like Bolsonaro is going to be the next president. But all of a sudden, you know, you have uh, the Brazilian real going up, the Brazilian stock market. You can look at one stock in particular uh, that, you know, we own for our clients in managed accounts and in uh, my mutual funds. The symbol on the stock is CIG in Brazil. But that stock is up over 80% from where it was last month's low. I mean, 80% in one month. And of course, it was up over 20% on Monday or about 20% on Monday following the results. It was up another 5% today, but it was up at the end of last week as he, this guy was rising in the polls. And so all of a sudden people were getting optimistic, but it shows you that even in the midst of a decline in the U.S. stock market, you could see emerge, some emerging market stocks rising. Well, I think the news is going to get so much better for the emerging markets once this bubble pops. Because the problem for the emerging markets, as I've been saying, is the strong dollar. So the collapse in the U.S. economy, a recession in the U.S. economy, is going to provide the much-needed relief. But the biggest element that is different between now and 2008 that everybody has to appreciate is the dollar has no friends now. Back in 2008, nobody was really talking about de-dollarizing or trying to find a way to get around the dollar or trying to develop alternative payment systems to the dollar. But beginning with um, the Obama administration and now continuing even stronger under Trump, the U.S. has increasingly weaponized the dollar, is putting on sanctions and using its extraordinary privilege of issuing the world's reserve currency to basically push everybody around and try to dictate and punish people that don't do what it wants. I think that when the dollar starts to fall, the world is going to rejoice. The world is going to revel in that, almost like you know the munchkins uh, in uh, the Wizard of Oz when you know Dorothy's house landed on the the Witch of the East, right? And they're all you know she's dead, and then again you know they're all happy and parading around. I think the world is going to celebrate. Uh, the decline of the dollar and what it means for the U.S. and its influence around the world. I mean, we're going to have to stew in it. We're going to have to deal with it. Remember that when the financial crisis hit in 2008 and the dollar initially had this big rally because everybody was short, nobody knew what was going to happen. When the Fed laid its cards on the table with QE1, the dollar dumped. People understood what that meant. And it was so weak that now countries began to worry about their currency being too strong, particularly if it meant that some other country would get an edge in exporting to the United States. And so we had this currency war where nobody wanted their currency to be too strong. Well, the next time the dollar falls, that ain't going to happen. Countries are going to be happy to see uh, the dollar fall. They're going to be happy to see their currency rising so that capital flows will reverse. Because right now they're suffering from their currencies being too weak. They are going to revel in their currencies being strong. So nobody is going to come to the dollar's aid. So it is going to drop like a stone. So I think the payoff now is going to be immediate. So, and that's, you know, it's not going to be bittersweet, maybe like it was last time. Like, hey, I was right, but my accounts went down. Now I'm going to be right, and I think my accounts are going to go way up. The frustrating part is I don't have all these new clients, you know, opening up accounts like I, like I did back then. And, of course, the most frustrating part, personally, is the clients who are closing their accounts, who waited patiently throughout most of the Obama administration, and now they're throwing in the towel and going all in on the U.S. stock market. And, you know, obviously they're going to get clobbered in the U.S. stock market, but more important than what they're going to lose in the U.S. stock market is what they're not going to make, the profits that they're giving up by getting out of this strategy, which I think is going to pay off in spades. And it's going to more than make up for the years where we didn't have any returns, uh, because I think the returns are going to be so good uh, that even if you go back, you know, to, you know, five years in the past and just average it out, it's still going to be much better than what the S&P would have been. Of course, none of this is is guaranteed. This is all my opinion, right? I mean, I could be completely wrong and the, the foreign stocks may never go up. Right, the, you, this may, maybe this isn't a bubble. Maybe this isn't like 2008. Maybe, maybe, maybe it is different this time. Maybe trees do go to the sky. Maybe it doesn't matter. Right? I just don't think that. I think people that are betting that this time it's different are 
are making a bad bet. I think I'm making the, the better bet, recognizing that it's not different, but, but that it's not exactly the same. I recognize what's the same, what's similar, and what the key differences are between now and 2008. The problems are even bigger now, but the key difference is where the investors are invested. Back in 2008, everyone was positioned short the dollar and long gold. And everybody had been buying foreign stocks and underweighted U.S. stocks. And then they got surprised by a crisis. Now they're going to get surprised by an even bigger crisis that's all part of the same problem, but they have the opposite position. Everybody's been buying U.S. stocks and underweighting foreign stocks. Everybody's been uh, buying the dollar, and now they're shorting gold. And again, I mentioned this on the podcast. People are short gold now for the first time since 2001. They were long gold. Nobody was short gold in summer of 2008. I mean, anybody who was short gold had long covered. Gold went from under 200 to 1,000. You think anybody stayed short for $700 rally in gold? No, all the shorts were gone. People were short, you know, before the rally began. Well, it took them until 2018 to get short again. I mean, this is fantastic coming into a crisis where everybody is short gold because now not only are people going to be buying gold as a safe haven, but the shorts are going to have to cover just to get back to even. So, I mean, it's the perfect storm coming. And, you know, talking about perfect storms, there's another hurricane, uh, Hurricane Michael, that's going to hit, I think, late tonight or tomorrow morning as a Cat 3, potentially. I think it's a Category 2 now, but it's expected to accelerate. And it's going to hit the panhandle of Florida, and then it's going to move up, and it's going to move through Georgia and go into the Carolinas with a lot of rain as a tropical storm. And they already had a lot of rain. They had flooding from the last hurricane. So this could do, again, a lot more damage. More government money is going to be thrown at, uh, at these states to repair the damage. Again, we don't have this money. We're broke. We've borrowed Uh, everything. We have nothing saved for a rainy day. And now it's not just raining, it's pouring. You know, there's hurricanes. So this, again, is going to add to the financial problems that we already have. I want to finish up the podcast, though, by talking about the Supreme Court. Brett Kavanaugh, over the weekend, was confirmed by the, the Senate. And in fact, you know, the Democrats, I mean, you had some women that were in the gallery who were watching the vote and they were just screaming. I forget how many of them were just like in almost like in agony that this was such a terrible thing that was happening, that that Judge Brett Kavanaugh was going to be sworn in. I don't think we've ever seen anything like that. They had to have the sergeant in arms constantly removing people from the gallery while they were having the vote. And of course, the vote was purely on party lines. It passed 50 to 48 And the reason it wasn't 100 votes is you had one Republican senator who couldn't be there. He was walking his daughter down the aisle. And so he would have voted yes. And so he he wasn't there. But another Republican who would have been the lone Republican vote to vote no, she decided not to vote at all so that this other guy wouldn't feel pressure to miss uh, his daughter's wedding. And so she just abstained. She would have been a no. uh, But... um, even if they both had voted, it would have been 51 to 49. There was one uh, Democrat who voted voted yes, but it was purely a partisan vote on, on this nomination. And then just yesterday, I think, uh, in a public ceremony that was on television, uh, you know, Brett Kavanaugh, you know, officially uh, took the oath. Uh, and then, uh, you know, Donald Trump actually had a conference and he apologized to Brett Kavanaugh on behalf of the nation, which even infuriated the Democrats even more because, after all, uh, they don't think any apology is due because they're sure he's guilty. And now we have this sexual predator, uh, this, uh, you know, binge drinker and uh, liar, perjurer who is now on the Supreme Court. And, of course, I think why these women were supposedly, you know, screaming in pain when they were witnessing this, it's not necessarily because, you know, they think that a sexual predator is now on the Supreme Court, but apparently they think that now Roe versus Wade is going to be overturned and that uh, abortions are going to be illegal in the United States and we're going to have back alley abortions again. And this is all a bunch of nonsense. This is not going to happen. 
I mean, they want to do this because it's, you know, it energizes the right and the left uh, to raise money from the people who are pro-choice and the people who are pro-life. But it really doesn't matter because that decision is not going to get overturned. I don't care. The Supreme Court is not going to do it. But even if they did, let's assume that the Supreme Court overturns Roe versus Wade, right? Does that mean that abortion is going to be illegal? No, it just means that if states want to impose restrictions on abortion, they would be able to do it, right? Well, how many states would? Most of them wouldn't do anything, right? Most states, the state legislatures, the governors, they're, pro- they're not going to outlaw abortion. What might happen is some states might have some more restrictions on abortion, I doubt any states would outlaw it completely, I mean, even in the first trimester. But even if that happened, even if you happen to live in a state where abortion is totally illegal, you get on a, you, you, you drive your car across state lines to the other state and you get an abortion. It's not the end of the world. I mean, some of these states are pretty small. You can live on a border. I mean, so it's not like women are not going to have access to abortion. Might it be a little bit more difficult if you have to get in a car or get on a train or, you know, whatever, take a bus? Yes. But you know what? It's it's not the end of the world. And it's probably not even going to happen. This is all much ado about nothing. What it really all boils down to is the the left wants to have certain type of judges on the Supreme Court. They want liberal judges who believe in big government and all these social programs. They want these guys on the court, but they also want them to have this loose view of the Constitution, right? That the Constitution is some kind of living, breathing document that means whatever you want it to mean, right? What the Republicans want is the Republicans want to appoint justices that are going to uphold the Constitution, that are going to enforce the Constitution, not their political agendas or their political opinions. But there's a reason for that. And that's because if you are a conservative, you like the Constitution the way it's written. You like the law. If you are a liberal, you hate the Constitution. The Constitution is a roadblock to everything that you want to accomplish. Because remember, the Constitution was written to limit the power of government. That's where the laws apply. The the, the Constitution is not about uh, the individuals, right? There are laws that are written that apply to the individuals. The Constitution is a law that was meant to apply to the government, to limit the power of the federal government, to a lesser extent to the states, because the Constitution does prohibit the states from doing certain things, but whatever is not prohibited, the states are free to do unless they're barred by their own Constitution. But what the the Constitution does do is it gives the U.S. government just uh, specific powers that are very few and enumerated in the Constitution. And the Constitution says that if the government doesn't have the power to do something, if it's not written in the Constitution that the government can do it, then they can't do it, right? So you have a very limited federal government. I mean, the federal government had a little bit more power under the Constitution than it did under the Articles of Confederation, but not much more, just a little bit more. The founding fathers didn't want to go from an extremely weak federal government to a strong federal government. They just wanted to make the weak federal government that we had under the Articles a little less weak, but the whole principle was still to have limited, weak federal government, to have most of what government was done was to do to, uh, on the state level. And of course, they didn't even want big government at the state level, but they wanted most of the things that government did, which was still going to be minimal, to be done at the state and local level. And they, they gave the federal government a few enumerated powers, and that was it. And you know, most of what the federal government was going to do, they thought it would do in wartime. You know, uh, in peacetime, the federal government was almost going to be an afterthought. It was during war that it would have some more power and maybe levy some direct taxes and and be more instrumental. But for internal matters, it was mainly going to be the state governments and local governments, and for you know, international for diplomacy and stuff like that and wars. That was going to be the province of the federal government. So if you are a conservative, right, if you actually are, let's say, a Republican and you believe in limited government, well, then you like the Constitution because the Constitution is there to limit government. But if you are a Democrat, if you are a liberal and you believe in big government, right, if you want to use the government to right the wrongs of society, 
to even things out, to redistribute wealth, to provide a social safety net, right? If you believe in giving people free stuff, whether it's free education or free health care, right? A small government can't give people free stuff. You need a big, powerful government to do that, right? If you believe in Social Security and Medicare and Obamacare and the minimum wage, you, you need a powerful government to accomplish all that. All that stuff is unconstitutional. That's the problem. I mean, you go back to the days of the, the, the New Deal with Franklin Roosevelt, right? Initially, every time Roosevelt passed some new program as part of the, the New Deal, the Supreme Court declared it unconstitutional. Why? Because all this stuff is unconstitutional. And it wasn't because they were Republicans or Democrats. They were just enforcing the, the Constitution, right? And when you have these the Democrats who are saying, well, we want somebody who has a liberal interpretation. We don't like these original constructionists, right? They, the original intent, like which is what they think Brett Kavanaugh is, right? That what, that's what makes a conservative justice is somebody who believes in original intent. Well, if you believe in original intent, it doesn't matter what your politics are. All this stuff is unconstitutional. The reason that Democrats want people who don't believe in, in original intent is because they want all this unconstitutional stuff passed. Right. And they know that if they get a liberal in there who actually believes in this nonsense, somebody who's dumb enough to think that welfare and a minimum wage and Social Security and Obamacare are good ideas, then they're willing to ignore the Constitution in order to pave the way for these good ideas. See, there was a lot of pressure back in the Roosevelt days when he was passing all this legislation that the people thought was a good idea. But the founding fathers were smart enough to know that all this stuff was a bad idea. That's why they didn't give the federal government the power to do all this stuff. But during the bad times of the Great Depression, which, you know, we're going to have even worse times in this coming depression. But back then, Roosevelt was like, oh, this is going to solve the problem. We're going to give this. The government's going to do that. And the Supreme Court justices kept striking it down. And, of course, back in the day, you know, they would caricature the justices. They were evil. They were mean, right, because they were in the way of the New Deal. People wanted the New Deal. They wanted these programs, and these justices were declaring them unconstitutional, which was the right thing to do. They should have declared everything was unconstitutional. And then, you know, we got to the point where Roosevelt was threatening to pack the Supreme Court, right? The Supreme Court has nine people, but the Constitution doesn't say that the Supreme Court has to have nine people. I'm not even sure. I forget why we have nine people. But what Roosevelt threatened to do was to put more people. He was saying, I think that any justice, I forget the exact particulars, but it was like, it had to do with how old you were. Like, if you were 70 years old and you didn't retire so that he can appoint somebody, because some of the justices were like, well, I'm never going to retire until Roosevelt is gone because they wanted to enforce the Constitution. So Roosevelt is getting pissed that these older judge justices aren't retiring so he can put his, you know, his, his cronies in there who will ignore the Constitution and just rubber stamp all this unconstitutional stuff. So Roosevelt threatened to just put add more people onto the Supreme Court, and then there'd be 11 people or 12 people, right? And so the, the new people would be all his people, and now they would allow all this unconstitutional stuff to get passed. But that never actually happened because the justices moved uh, to the left. I mean, the, 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 the famous decision, there was one decision involved one of the a minimum wage or something, and you had one justice, Owen Roberts, that was the guy, and he had been, you know, he had been voting against the New Deal programs, and all of a sudden he swung the other way, and there was a five to four decision that upheld the constitutionality of what was clearly an unconstitutional law, but now all of a sudden one of the justices uh, switched votes, and they have, they have referred to that ever since as the switch in time that saved nine. If you ever heard that expression, a sw the switch in time that saved nine, and you didn't know what it meant, that's what it meant because this guy switched his vote from unconstitutional to constitutional, and it saved nine people being on the Supreme Court because had he not switched, then maybe Roosevelt would have succeeded in packing the court in order to move the court in his direction, but it happened anyway. And then all of a sudden, more of this uh, 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 New Deal legislation was declared constitutional, even though it wasn't. I mean, first of all, if you've got five to four decisions where you have five justices saying something is unconstitutional and four dissenting guys saying it's unconstitutional, I mean, are those four dissenting justices wrong? 
I mean, if they, maybe they're right, right? Maybe it's the guys that think it's constitutional that are wrong, right? And so if the four guys are right, and again, I mean, you got four justices saying a law is unconstitutional. They could be right. I mean, these are smart guys. They went to law school or they were judges for a long time. They understand the Constitution. So it doesn't mean that they're wrong just because you have five other people that had an opposite opinion. Right. So we have all this unconstitutional stuff. So you have all the battle now. What the Democrats really want, it's not about abortion. They want liberal judges that believe in all this nonsense. Right that don't understand capitalism, the free market, that actually hate the Constitution the way it's written, and so they want to ignore it, and they want to get let the government do whatever it wants in the name of just moving forward this progressive agenda. Now you have Republicans who are opposed to big government and understand that the Constitution is opposed to big government too. And so they want justices that are going to enforce the Constitution. They're going to do what justices are supposed to do, which is apply the Constitution to the law, I mean, to the facts, to the government, and actually do what the Constitution was designed to do, which is chain the government, right, bind the government in the chains of the Constitution to prevent it from doing all sorts of things that the Democrats want to do. And so if we actually had honest judges who enforced the Constitution, it really wouldn't matter if Democrats won these elections because they couldn't do anything. Because every time they tried to pass one of these ridiculous programs, the Supreme Court would strike it down as being unconstitutional. That is part of the checks and balances system, right? That's why we have a Supreme Court. So if Congress passes an unconstitutional a bill, a law, if they go exceed their authority, even if the president signs it, even if every single member, even if all 100 senators vote for it, all 435 congressmen vote for it, I mean, which obviously doesn't happen, and then the president signs it, five guys on the Supreme Court could say it's unconstitutional to strike the whole thing down, right? So much for democracy. The Supreme Court was put in there to keep the other two branches in check just in case they tried to do something that exceeded their constitutional authority. That's why I feel personally the branch of the government that has sold the American public out the most is the judicial branch. They could have put a stop to all this, but no, because we had so many liberals on the Supreme Court who wanted to be popular, who didn't want to be seen as the guy that stopped some free program, right? They didn't want to stand in the way of the voter and, and something for free. They didn't have the guts to strike down these unconstitutional laws. And so to try to be popular, they just allowed them. They just, they just came up with these rationales of a living, breathing document, the necessary and proper clause, the commerce clause. They just ignored the law and they made all kinds of bad precedent that we now have to live with. And that brings me to what people are now afraid of happening with Roe versus Wade, which is that the bad precedent is going to be reversed. And it's not. That would be great. But unfortunately, all of the conservative justices that have been appointed, in order to get appointed, they basically have to say, oh, no, I am not going to vote to get rid of all the unconstitutional stuff that already exists, right? They say that they believe in precedent. They pay homage to precedent. So even if you believe that Social Security is unconstitutional, you're going to let it stand because it's been here so long. Even if you believe the minimum wage is unconstitutional, you're, you're going to let it stand, right? So all this bad stuff is supposed to stay on the books because the justices say that precedent is more important than the actual Constitution. So really where the battleground is, is going forward. It's not about getting Supreme Courts that are going to strike down all the bad precedent and are actually going to say that all these programs that were previously approved that were, were not constitutional, where the dissent was right and the majority was wrong, they're not going to go back and correct the wrongs of the past. Everybody's position is, the wrongs of the past are stuck we, we, because we've been wrong for so long, because the government has been doing it for so long that, well, we're going to keep on doing it. It's all about the degree on expansion. It's almost like saying, hey, we're not fighting a war to end slavery. It's just about should the new states coming into the union, should they be free states or slave states? Because we don't want to go back and, and, and end slavery anywhere it already exists because it's already there. We're just talking about maybe we shouldn't have slavery in the new states. That's kind of the same mentality that, hey, we already have all these unconstitutional laws on the books, 
But because they've been on the books for so long and so many people now depend on these unconstitutional programs, it would be too disruptive to society to do the right thing now and strike them down. So we're going to allow all the unconstitutional laws that are already on the books to stand. But what we're going to do is just going forward, if the government wants to come up with another unconstitutional law, right, well, now we'll say no, we, we won't let the government do that, right? So if they came up with some, let's say a new tax on, uh, on property, a federal property tax or a federal wealth tax, right? That could be struck down as being unconstitutional before it really takes off. But if you have a court that isn't going to enforce the Constitution, you just have a bunch of liberals who love progressive taxes and think the rich need to pay more, well, they're going to find some way to rationalize the constitutionality of a clearly unconstitutional tax. In fact, had we had more uh, conservative justices on the court when Obamacare was first passed, that first time it came up, it might have been struck down as being unconstitutional. But I think now, because even Obamacare has been here for a number of years, I don't even think the court would go back and get rid of it, even though it was clearly unconstitutional, even, you know, even by their own criteria. So I think the unconstitutional laws that are on the books are safe. The only bright spot is a a lot of more laws, like if, 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 if you think about my, my prediction politically, is that the economy goes into recession or big recession. We have a huge uh, stagflation. We have a, 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 a blue wave of Democrats that gain control of the House and the Senate, right? And we have a socialist president and a socialist Congress. And now we have this massive recession. And they come up with all kinds of crazy socialist programs, right, to enact and crazy regulations and taxes, it's possible that this Supreme Court will strike all that nonsense down. And that could be the best thing that Trump is able to accomplish during his presidency is the fact that he may have created a court that will have the guts to actually defend the Constitution and strike down all this stuff, even though it gets voted for, even though it gets passed, because while they won't go back and reverse precedent and get rid of all the unconstitutional laws that are already on the books, they can draw a line in the sand and say, okay, we're just not going to allow more unconstitutional laws to be passed and to, and to survive since those have not been ingrained in society yet. They haven't been here long enough. We're going to nip that in the bud. But personally, if it were up to me, if I were on the Supreme Court, I would not take the position that precedent is more important than the Constitution. If a law was passed as being constitutional, that is unconstitutional, if the dissenters were right and the majority got it wrong, the sooner we fix the problem, the better. If the government has exceeded its constitutional authority, it's time to rein the government back in. Now, if the people want to change the Constitution, they could do it, right? So if you start having justices that strike down uh, Social Security and Medicare and the minimum wage and stuff like that, and they want to amend the Constitution through its normal process to enable it, then let, go at it. But, you know, now all of a sudden, if we have to do that, we might not be able to. They might not be able to get enough votes to amend the Constitution. And so we might have to start shrinking government. But the key is we have to preserve the Constitution as a meaningful document. It can't just be this living, breathing nonsense that changes with the wind that means whatever you want it to mean because then it means nothing then it's void for vagueness then we don't have a constitution which has basically been the case uh, ever since the new deal there is no constitution i mean they use it every once in a while for free speech or freedom of association but where it really counts see that's the bill of rights that's the last ten that's the first 10 amendments of the constitution that you know we still have you know some protection there with the bill of rights but the body of the constitution itself which was written to really limit the power of the federal government, you know, that's basically nothing there. Everybody swears an oath to defend the Constitution from all enemies, domestic and foreign, and then they don't defend it against anybody. And the biggest threat to the Constitution has always been domestic. It hasn't been foreign. It's our own legislature that has been a threat to the Constitution. And the Supreme Court has refused to enforce that Constitution because it hasn't been popular, because all these socialist ideas that basically are banned by the Constitution, 
became more and more popular with the electorate because the electorate always wants free stuff. The Constitution was written to prevent the federal government from supplying that free stuff. And so any justice that was enforcing the Constitution, oh, you're, you're a friend of the rich, you're an enemy of the people, you're just a fat cat, you're in the pockets of the rich. You know, and so that kind of pressure over time you know, destroyed the Constitution. So what the justices should do is reassert the Constitution and strike down all these unconstitutional laws. Just because we've been doing something wrong for 50 or 100 years, when you recognize it's wrong, you correct the problem and you make it right. You don't say, well, we've been doing this wrong thing for so long, we're just going to legitimize it by continuing to do it. No, the sooner you fix the problem, the better. You can't allow bad precedent that you know is bad to continue just because it's the precedent. If something is bad, you replace it with something that's good. Mm -hmm.